Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Metabolic health measures how effectively our body processes energy. And measuring glucose is the primary way that we assess one's metabolic health. There's mounting evidence that poor metabolic health leads to numerous chronic conditions like diabetes, stroke, and heart disease. The problem, though, has been that our tools for measuring glucose have been too episodic to be useful. Fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C show patients only a snapshot, but they can't learn why the measure is what it is or what to do about it. Levels Health is trying to change that. By using continuous glucose monitors and pairing them with a mobile app, they show you how the things that you eat and the way that you live your life impact your glucose and therefore your metabolic health. And it turns out that the things that influence glucose vary widely from person to person, and learning what spikes your glucose can lead to much more actionable changes. I was a very early beta tester of Levels, and I can speak personally to how it changed the way that I approach eating, sleep, and stress management. So I couldn't be more excited to share this conversation with Maz Bumand, head of business at Levels. And in this discussion, we talk about why Levels made the decision to go direct to consumer, why they believe a closed sign-up process is better for startups early on, what they learned about user behavior with wearable devices, why they invested in organic channels from the very beginning, and much, much more. It was a fascinating conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And with that, let's go to Maz. All right, Maz, thank you so much for doing this. Why don't we get started maybe with your your background? You know, you had kind of a journey that led you to Levels. Why don't we start there and 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 how you got where you are now? Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Quite non-linear. I trained as an electrical engineer undergrad and worked in a couple of engineering companies. I worked for Honeywell, Motorola, and Intel and did the engineering tour. But I quickly figured out that's not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. Got to figure out how the world works. I joined consultant like many people. Obviously, it was never meant to be a forever thing and spent a few years there. Eventually, I decided to go into the finance world and work for the hedge funds. And primarily, the reason I did that was because I really wanted to understand how finance works, how the world works, how does it all come together. And finance, specifically investing, provides a direct feedback to your thoughts and decisions. So. I did that for a few years, but again, that was never meant to be a forever thing, primarily because it's a fascinating area on a field, but it feels a little bit empty. And I think a lot of people that do that for some time come to that realization. And so in my soul searching to figure out what I want to do next, I talked to a lot of people and I joined Apple after a number of conversations. And really there, I focused on uh, new technology. And how do we actually bring and enable the next generation of technologies for consumers? And given that Apple has a very consumer uh, focus, it opened a whole different world is how do we put consumers at the center of the equation? And I think this is especially true in consumer uh, electronics. And that made an impression on me. And when Apple went deeper into health, given that we were in the uh, new technology group, I took the initiative to help build some of the health technologies or supported from the commercial and business side. And I spent the last number of years working on that. And I think what Apple really helped create was this foundation to put the control back into the hands of users, which is taking their data, which has never been available to them, and putting it on the device so they and other people can build on this platform so people can look at their data and businesses can use that to put the consumer at the center, whether it's correlating their data, whether it's based on that data, giving them personalized feedback and coaching. 
And I did that for a number of years at Apple. And I got introduced to Levels about a year ago. And I really liked what I saw. At the time, I think they were only, they were, they were very young. But for a company their age, they had published so much useful information and really broke down the problem from a consumer perspective, kind of the same DNA that Apple had, putting the consumer in the middle. Because a lot of places, a lot of things, a lot of uh, technology companies in health are coming from the payer and provider world because I think there's this notion that that's where things are. Whereas I think our thesis, and I think increasingly this is becoming mainstream, is that we need to put the consumers in the middle and remove the disintermediation that's caused a lot of problems in the health system. And Levels was one of the companies that did two things really well. One is it was 100% consumer focused. And two, it tackled the metabolic problem, which is a much broader problem than just diabetes or glucose. It's how your body uses and produces energy, which is the underlying of a lot of the issues that people have in terms of chronic diseases. So they were really doing two things. One is going from the consumer perspective, and the other one was that they're taking a much broader approach. And I think when you have these moments in time where big changes or big steps need to be taken, I feel like startups are a better position to start that journey. And then people, companies like Apple and other big players have a place in the ecosystem to really take that and make it a lot more mainstream. But I felt like at this time in my career, this was the right move to come and help lead this change and uh, really drive the metabolic health angle, which I think is one of the biggest challenges we, we, we face in health. And then two is tackle it from the consumer side. That's awesome. I, I, there's so many things I want to go with this. I, I'd be curious, you know, your experience at Apple, you know, we've dealt with a number of our investments were in healthcare. I've had clients in healthcare. A lot of them have had to go through, you know, these EMRs like Epic and things like that. And like, there's been this big kind of meta question about like who, who should own the, the data at an individual patient level. And yeah. Apple, it seems like was making a play or is making a play that that should be Obviously, that should be the patient should own that, and then, and secondly, that the the platform or the device is kind of the ideal place to house that. I would imagine that you had some exposure to kind of that world. Like, how does that? First of all, is that is that an accurate representation you think of reality? And then, secondly, like, how does that um, fit into kind of your mental model as you were evaluating? you know, where to go. And as you discovered levels, because it seems like levels, it's sort of a spoke that plugs into the whole. You know, an incredibly important spoke, but a spoke that kind of plugs into this hub that assumes that ideology that the patient should own their data and that that data should be read, like is ideally resident on a device that they're kind of carrying around with them constantly. How do you think about that? Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that the consumer should own their data. And because of the way the health system has been set up, unfortunately, that's not the case, but there is no doubt in my mind that the consumer should own their data and then decide what they want to do with it, whether um, they want to use it to make decisions or whether share it with people that they trust and have their best interest in mind to help them on their health journey. And I think it all has to start from the person because nobody cares about your health more than you. Right. And so if you can share your data or work with people 
to improve that and you see that they're giving back to you and they have their best interests, obviously that's the best and most important relationship. And in healthcare, unfortunately, the buyer and the user are separated where the person that's paying is different than the person that's using and naturally they're going to have different interests. And so what happens is that when you build a product for a payer, the buyer, you're going to build features for the person that's paying you. As we all know, incentives are super powerful. Instead of building features for the person that's going to be using, and this is why we end up in this quagmire of creating a lot of products that nobody uses. Yeah. And so by flipping that on its head, I think there's an opportunity to make a big difference. I go back to your, you know, one of your questions. I have no doubt that the consumer should own their data. And I think Apple played a really big role in this space. And I was really proud of being part of that team. I'm part of Apple for as long as I was. I was there almost nine years. Yeah. And the philosophy runs deep. The idea that you own your data and the privacy and the fact that it's all on device. Apple was one of the few big players that decided early on before privacy was popular uh, or cool to make the device the center. And you own your data on your device instead of being in the cloud. And I think that, you know, that has a lot of implications and has allowed for this platforms to be created with that mentality in mind and that infrastructure in mind. Healthkit being probably the most prominent example where the data goes into one place and then you can share it with as many people through a easy and simple interface consented in a way that you feel that you have control over your data. And I think yeah. Apple's played a big role in that and it's created this ecosystem that now people like Levels can come along and say, great, we can build on top of this infrastructure instead of having to create all of these bespoke APIs and connections that would, wouldn't be possible. Yeah, I can, see, I can see how Levels became kind of the next step in your career, kind of given all of that. Before we get into that, into more detail about Levels, like why don't we, just for people who aren't familiar you know, how, how do you describe levels to somebody that's never never heard of it? It's a really good question. I think at a at a tactical level, levels helps you understand how food and your lifestyle affects your metabolic health. And again, rewinding, what does metabolic health is? How your body produces energy and uses energy, which ultimately has implications of how we feel, how we live, and how sick we get. And so what Levels does is closes that feedback loop between your actions, whether you're eating a burger or whether you're sleeping poorly or whether you're super stressed. And it's a journey for us. Obviously, we're starting with food first. But when you, take, when you eat that hamburger, your body reacts in a certain way. And using a CGM will basically tell you, how did your body react to that hamburger? And it'll tell you in real time, which means... If it didn't react well, you know not to do that versus in a world where everything's based on a generalization and a lot of times actually a, a hypothesis versus an actual cause and effect creates a very confusing path for people to follow to have a better outcome. And I think food is notorious for that, right? First of all, it's very personal. What affects me will be different than what affects you. Second of all, we really didn't know. Like... You know, a great example, and this is true for most of the people uh, on the team, is how oatmeal affects them. Oatmeal for many, many years have been known to be one of the healthiest breakfasts you can have. And conversely, oatmeal is probably one of the things that spikes your glucose the most. So for many years, people 
that didn't even like oatmeal have been eating oatmeal, thinking it's healthy. But yeah. it's actually one of the things that creates the most disruption in your glucose, which leads to your energy and obviously your long-term, potentially your long-term health. So that's a good example of really closing the feedback loop between your action, the outcomes that your body feels from that action. Yeah. You mentioned that it's, you know, it's in this space that we call kind of metabolic health. And it seems like that's sort of an emerging field and that we're, you know, we're learning a lot more about it. And, and you all, I imagine, are, are one of the, the kind of key players kind of in, in facilitating that. Why, for people that aren't familiar, I mean, nutrition is so confusing. What is metabolic health? Why is it, why is it so important when you talk about, you know, to use the oatmeal example, hey, it's a slow carb. It's going to keep me satiated. It's not a simple carbohydrate or whatever it is. And so there's this checklist of things that, or mental models that I think people have. And, you know, the, the idea of like, like a glucose spike being problematic is, I think, a relatively new idea for a lot of people. So, so how do you, what's the, the layperson's version of, of why this, this kind of emerging field of metabolic health is so important for people? I think there's a short-term effect and a long-term effect. The short-term effect is how you feel, right? So if I have a huge spike of glucose, most likely my body will produce insulin and bring it right back down and it will overshoot. And that overshoot means that I'm going to have now low glucose and that's going to be the feeling of crash that we typically feel. So there is a feeling nature of it and that leads to our daily action. So if I feel tired, I'm probably not going to be as capable in school. If I'm trying to learn, I'm probably not going to be as sharp in a meeting at work. If I'm trying to make a point. So it affects how we live through how we feel. That's yeah. the short term, which is we feel it, right? Like there's one thing to tell people like, do this because in 10 years you won't have this disease. And there's another thing to people to say, look, the action you did right now actually affects how you feel in the afternoon when you're trying to doze at your desk. And we all know what that feeling feels like. And it really sucks. And when you're sitting at the end of dozing, you don't want that feeling. And so if there was a feedback loop that tells you, hey, the reason you're having that is because you had a really high carb, naked carb, rich lunch or breakfast, and tomorrow, why don't you try this and see how you feel? And you do that and you feel better. It's just internalized versus telling somebody that you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z because that, that connection is missing. So that's short term. And then there's long term. And there are some really great uh, books out there, one by Robert Lustig called Metabolical and another by Ben Bickman called Why We Get Sick that gets into the physiology of how dysfunction in your metabolism, the cycle of glucose, insulin, can lead to a lot of downstream problems, which are effectively the basis, or at least a big contributor to things like diabetes, hypertension, and even potentially Alzheimer's. And so I'll leave your listeners to go read those books for themselves, but those are two of the books that I, I recommend. Both of those folks, we believe in them so much uh, that they are our advisors. And it's really helped shape our thinking and the science. And, yeah. and you know, one of the things that attracted me to Levels, in addition to the mission and the team, was this idea that it's very much science-based, whether it's from data coming from something like Google Monitor or from the best science that's available today. Yeah. Yeah. And along those lines, so, you know, you, you have this mission of I'm wanting to 
solve, you know, a metabolic health kind of epidemic or whatever it is. Obviously, there's a lot of decisions around like there's there's the, you know, here's, there's a customer hypothesis, there's a problem hypothesis, there's a solution, right? And I would imagine that there were probably a lot of conversations around like, how do we, how do we best go about solving it? And I have to imagine, you know, you mentioned CGMs for folks that are familiar, it's a continuous glucose monitor. I mean, the solution, the level solution is a, literally a device that I have on my arm or my shoulder or whatever it is. And I kind of keep it on all day long, which maybe for people who were diabetic or something like that was something they were familiar with. That's a big form factor decision, right? And like, there's a lot of pros, certainly from like a word of mouth perspective for you, et cetera. I would imagine it's helpful from a retention or an adherence perspective because I'm, I'm constantly reminded to check, you know, things. But that's a non-trivial decision that we're going to go we're going to go all in on a, on a physical device that people literally wear. Walk us through, like, how did, how did, how did you arrive at that as the kind of the ideal, as the ideal solution? Because it seems like a big deal, I would think. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a lot of things when they first start out, they seem weird and new. And then after you use them, it's like, oh, of course, why did I ever worry about that? And that, yeah. that's just been true throughout. Adoption of technology is always difficult. But the, the hypothesis for us is closing the feedback loop. So our big vision for the company is becoming a bio-observability company, which is effectively, can we objectively tell you what's going on inside your body at yep. the molecular level? Yep. Because until you know that and you can provide these feedback loops real time, you really don't know whether your behavior is leading to this outcome inside your body. Yeah. And I think to do that, you have to figure out, okay, what are the available sensors today that can do that also are meaningful. So you want to make sure you're actually measuring something that, first of all, changes. If my glucose didn't change for 48 hours, it'd be totally meaningless because there's no change. So it has to change with the appropriate frequency to the behavior. It has to be meaningful, meaning if I, in fact, change the trajectory of that analyte, yeah. It will actually have an impact on how I feel and how high my health. And glucose is a big one. Both the sensors exist, which are the CGMs, and the, the molecule is super meaningful because it is the basis of your energy production, which means how you feel and then over time, how your cells live yeah. and produce energy, which leads yeah. to or doesn't lead to certain health conditions. Yeah, makes sense. You know, it's interesting. Uh, traditional healthcare is very episodic, right? So like when I do glucose, I either am doing like a 24 hour fasting glucose or I'm doing like the, what is it? The hemoglobin A1C 90 day yeah. kind of trend thing. But it's to your point, like, I guess it shows you your general trend, but it seems like from a behavior change perspective, it's pretty limited in terms of a tool. You mentioned earlier that a lot of companies have try to go through providers or payers kind of from a business model perspective and you all made a very conscious decision to go direct to consumer i'd be really interested to learn like how that thought process went because on the one hand i would think that if you could convince care providers that you can get patients to wear the like non-diabetic patients to wear these things that just the, the the volume of data and the quality of the data would just be orders of magnitude better than what they're currently getting but then on the other hand right like you have to, like you said, you're now you're dealing with conflicted incentives and you have to deal with payers and all of these sorts of things. So like, what was that conversation like? And how did you ultimately kind of decide other than, or maybe it was philosophically, it's just philosophically, we believe that the patient should own their data. And the best way to do that is to go direct. 
maybe that's as simple as it was, but I'd just be curious because, you know, it's a, it's a relatively high price point product and behavior change and all these kinds of things. There's, there's, it seems like there's a lot of variables at play um, there. And I would imagine that doctors at a minimum would want, at least in theory, access to some of this data. So walk through some of that. Yeah. Really fantastic question. Look, I think as a startup or almost any business, you have more options than you can take. And so there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of ways you can do things, a lot of wrong ways, a lot of right ways. So the question is, then you look and say, what do I believe? What are my principles and values? And how do I think based on the strengths that I have, I can actually win? And by win, I mean collectively, like achieve your mission and your goal. Yeah. And for us, we strongly believe in a couple of key concepts. One is the consumer has to be at the center. Nobody cares more about the consumer than the consumer. So they have to be empowered to make decisions yeah. about themselves, whether it's a purchasing decision, whether it's about sharing their data, whether it's a decision to adopt a behavior. It's all starts and ends with the consumer. And everybody else is, is playing a support role. So if the consumer is in the middle, then should we be building a product for the payer? Because incentives are super powerful. So if I go now build a product for the payer and the incentives payer is going to decide whether they're going to buy or not our software for their members, I'm going to produce the product for them. I'm going to create dashboards. I'm going to create uh, metrics. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then as a afterthought, I'm going to be like, okay, so what does the member want? Oh, okay, they want to be healthier. So I'll just clue something together and that's it. I got a product and I'll spend most of my time on sales cycles with the buyers instead of on the product. And all of my product team is going to be focused on how to create those features to satisfy the buyer. So it's, we think is the wrong approach because instead of putting the customers in the center, now you're putting the payer in the center. By the way, we'd love to work with payers in the right way. Sure. And I think the question isn't that they're working with them as good or bad. The question is that who should be at the center? So customers should be at the center. And yeah. our entire business principle is creating value for the customer and building trust and long-term relationship with that customer. So all of our business decisions at the end of the day will be, does it create or detract value? Does it build or subtract trust? Yeah. And so that really helps us be grounded in how to build our business. And then yeah. everything else flows down from those core principles. And then the other question you asked is, okay, now that we have that principle, there's also a million ways to go build a product for the consumer. Yeah. How do you go do it? Then we look and say, what do we believe is our competitive advantage? And what do we know that we think will work? And two concepts. One, because of being startup and because of being, I would say, a relatively senior team, relatively driven team, we think we can move fast. So anything that we think will slow us down, we'll try to manage. And so, you know, if something it's 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 if it's deciding between iterating fast and moving quickly, for example, when you're first starting out, do you make a decision of doing a beta or do we just go all out and launch? Going all, all out on launching has slowing effects because you have to find your market fit. You can't change the product all the time. You can't get as much feedback. You can't be. You can't do a lot of things you can do in beta. So we made the yeah, decision. It, seems like it wouldn't allow you to to 
seems like at least from an early adopter perspective, there's a very particular type of person that would want to use this at the at the, at the outset that, that is comfortable with this new new mental model. You know, and you think about like the fusion of innovations and all that kind of thing. Like when you do the the grand launch, you can't you can't self-select for those people. And I would imagine that from a data, the kind of data that you get is polluted, you know, people who yeah. don't adopt, people that weren't going to adopt anyway, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, totally. And it creates uh, all sorts of problems. One is the idea that, yeah, noise, there's a ton of noise in the system. So you don't know which one's noise and what signal. The other one is you have to deal with a lot more things. So instead of focusing on building and innovating, you're reacting. And so there's, but that's just an example. So speed is one. The other thing is we really believe in this concept of feedback loops or control systems. You know, in any control system, if you've studied control theory, it's about minimizing the error. In order to be able to minimize the error, you have to have a closed feedback loop and you have to be able to observe the system. Yeah. And so in order to do that, we have to observe, which is we have to have something that measures the thing that matters. In our case right now, it's Glucose. Yeah. And in order to close that feedback loop, we have to have a software on top of it that turns the insight, the measurement to insight, to action, and closes that loop continuously to drive to a direction. If you look in, in, in nature, things that have closed feedback loops are things that get large and big, and things that don't, don't grow. And so the idea is then how can you create these positive feedback loops in a way to create this outsized effect? And yeah. You then kind of build down from there, okay, what pieces do I need to put in place to make that happen and so on and so forth. So from a practical perspective, does that mean that, for example, you know, like you mentioned, you have a, you have a longer term vision of, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you know, you want to, you want to have visibility into kind of all, all of the things that are kind of going on in, in me. I would imagine that that, added, that, that, that impacted not only like, Hey, where we're going to focus, but also like within the product itself, hey, here are 12 theoretical things that customers are asking for or that we think would be valuable. We're going to do these three and do them, A, do them well, make sure that we're getting into it. But then, but, but then B, it sounds like from the very beginning, you were building in, you took the, the, to close that feedback loop, you were building from an analytics perspective and from a, I guess, instrumentation perspective, like whatever processes you needed on the back end to observe like is this working are these couple of things working is that is a is that accurate and then b any sort of best practices that you kind of learned through that process around like the types of what 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 goes into kind of creating a closed loop system that other, yeah. other founders could take advantage of yeah it's a good question if i understand your question correctly prioritization is always a challenge like I've seen analytics. Right, right, I've seen analytics be like an add-on they throw it on at the end right they track very simple metrics yeah. they're not really digging into you know what i mean so like it seems yeah. like you would get a lot of error to your to use your language there yeah i think there's two concepts there one concept is like the jobs to be done framework which is now a, a pretty popular framework what are our customers actually hiring us to do so keeping yeah. that front and center is really important and then asking yourself is the thing that i'm adding gonna get that job done and if it's not it's it's a distraction the second thing is does it all fit together as a system and that, I think, concept is probably the, the most important concept is yeah. you can work on a lot of random features and you're like, hey, I heard that community is a good thing. Let's add a community feature. I heard that it's, you know, you know being able to compete is a good thing. Let's throw a com competition feature in, but not really understanding how does this all work in a system in a reinforcing way to create, again, positive feedback loops. And so when you're making decisions, A, you got to 
do the job that somebody hired you to do. And then B, you got to build features that work as a system, not as individual components that are ad hoc and meaningless. And that's, you know, when sometimes you buy a product and it feels gadgety or gimmicky, I think what is what we're noticing there, it doesn't work in the system. It's just something that was cool that somebody added, but it doesn't really do the job and it doesn't reinforce the system. So what's an example, like in the context of levels, just to kind of apply that, how do things that would maybe in other other apps or other products be kind of disparate um, add-ons or not that intentional? Like how how did you design it as a system where they all kind of reinforce each other? Yeah, and it's, you know, it sounds a lot more uh, meditated and and planned than it does. Uh, creation is messy. So hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty. So t- uh, take everything I tell you with a grain of salt. It's, you know, first when we created it, actually the, the history of the company, I, was, I wasn't here back then, but I've, you know, we document everything. So I've seen it. It was very bare bones. Yeah. You know, people went and had this thesis that CGMs really changed the way we behave around yeah. food. Mm-hmm. And so got, you know, the founders got prescriptions, you know, put them on, had a spreadsheet that could kept track of, you know, how their body reacts. Yeah. And talked amongst themselves. Then eventually they created a software that did really basic stuff, which yeah. was, you know, sending information. Everything was hand done, built and built on top of that. But the job to be done here is that those three pieces of the puzzle, which is measure me, tell me what state I'm in, like measure, like do an assessment of where I am today. Yep. Based on that, give me an insight of okay, your glucose is all over the place. What does that mean? That's the insight, right? And then what's the action to take? Which is, okay, now that I've seen my glucose data, it's not good, great. And I know why it's not great. So what do I do about it? And doing that in a seamless way, in a way that it meets you where you are and it feels personalized and takes you where you need to go. And people are different, different goals. That's the magical piece. And it takes time to get there. You know, we've built the education layer. We've probably published hundreds of articles, if not more. I lost count. I think it was something there of 200 something articles last year, several hundred podcasts. So we spent a lot of time building the science and the, or I shouldn't say building, we've gathered the science. That's why we have some of the best advisors, at least in my opinion, in the world. Yeah. And there's a lot of good research out there. And so we dug into it and formed an opinion about that and aggregated it in things like blog, podcast, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of like the insights layer. The measurement layer, obviously, is the CGM on the graphs and things like that. And then the action layer is something that we're working on, yeah. which is, okay, now that I know this thing, but so what do I do about it? Like today, like any technology that first comes out, the early adopters will figure it out. Like when I got my CGM, I was super excited. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at the graph and it's like, hey, what's the area on the curve mean? What does the spike mean? Like what's the double spike mean? Yeah. But that's not a mass product, mass market product, right? So how do you actually make it in a way that it meets everybody? It's totally understandable. It, it gives you the insight, gives you the action, takes you on a journey. I think yeah. that's... That's the, that's the future. And then you add on top of it, which is, okay, we're looking at maybe focus on food now. Should we focus on you know, sleep and mental health? Or I would say mental health is the wrong word, like stress yeah. as additional things that could change your, 
the way you feel on your glucose spikes. Should we add yeah. additional sensors and so on and so forth? So you just kind of built from that core. Yeah, it's a good case study, and you know everybody talks about like MVPs and things like that. But I think that they t- they don't fully appreciate that it can be a lot more minimal than they think, right? Like, so I would imagine a lot of other companies that went down this path would have thought, for example, like, oh, we need our own CGM. And I know you all leveraged third-party CGMs. Probably, I assume you realized that like the little disc is not the not where yeah. the value. I mean, like it is where the value is being created because you have to have it, but it's sort of table stakes, right? And it's not, yeah. it's not where the value is going to be created. It's in those insights for the user and what they actually can kind of do with that data using the spreadsheet versus like building an app. Like you could, you could learn an awful lot really, really quickly to your point by not worrying about, Hey, let's, let's figure out like, is this actually yeah. useful first? And then we'll build the app to do it. Right. Yeah. That's so, that's so, that's such a valuable advice. I think that you just articulated so well, which is what does really MVP mean? And people get stuck. They were like, well, this is the core thing. If we don't make it, then X, Y, Z, but it's like, okay. So, but are you going to spend the next three years working on that piece without knowing whether your idea is going to work? Right. And so I think that's a good advice. I think the other thing is this mentality of a zero sum is a dangerous one, in my opinion. And I think companies like Apple, like Amazon, like Google, hopefully have helped change this narrative, which is an ecosystem is so much more powerful yeah. than feeling like you're competing with everybody in the world. And so yeah. it's totally healthy thing that there is a hardware company or two or three or four that are yep. building the sensors. Yep. You know, it's totally healthy that there are a number of software companies that are building the experience. And that, that's all good. And, you know, I think Apple really taught me that, you know, building HealthKit, letting everybody build on top of it, even, you know, allowing a third-party hardware like Garmin or Aura to build on top of that software platform. Or even on the Apple Watch, allowing other people to build software like Strava building software on in addition to Apple's native. Yep. And it's not a competition. It's just a really rich ecosystem that brings value to consumers. Which again, if you think about the consumer at the center, it really changes your perspective because you no longer think about it as a zero sum. You think about how can we all collectively create value for the consumer? Along those lines, you know, you mentioned you mentioned this kind of migration from the early adopter who's willing to put up with a lot of kind of not necessarily bugs, but just like, you know, they, they like tinkering. They like figuring it out on their own. They like, you know, I remember when I, when I had, when I, when I did it, you know, I was, I was eating and drinking stuff that I don't normally eat and drink just because I wanted to see, you know what I mean? Like, just like, there was a discovery. Well done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what have you learned, I guess, about, especially because I, I think, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you have to educate the consumer about metabolic health and why it's important. There's been a trope, I think, or an assumption in healthcare that kind of like finance, like your finances, you, you, people have difficulty making decisions that will have impact over the next 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is. And so you're trying yeah. to kind of get people to go from their future self and project back into their current self. There's a lot kind of going on there. And I, I would imagine it's probably one of the reasons why a lot of healthcare companies have been wary about trying to go direct to consumer. What have you learned maybe about how to make that jump from the early major, like the early adopter to like that next level on, you know, Moore's curve or across yeah. the chasm, so to speak? How do you educate yeah. that, that next group of people 
um, and create a good experience for them too? Yeah, it's a good experience. I mean, it's a good question. I think one is, I'm still getting used to the terminology, Levels has a very open and transparent culture. And I think that really helps. You know, we are probably on the extreme side of it and building in the open. And as part of that, you have to be transparent and, and somewhat hum- humble, right? When we create these products, we don't know if everything will pan out our features, the way we present it. And we really want to bring in our community and our members. And there's a reason why we call them members versus just users or customers. Yeah. Because we want this value exchange to be two ways. And we want to make sure that if we do get this gift from our members of, hey, I don't like this because of X, Y, Z, or hey, this doesn't work the way it should be, or hey, you're demotivating me. Like being thoughtful to receive that feedback. And we may not always take it because we understand maybe the system as a whole. And maybe this in its abstract is not, doesn't make sense, but at this total does. Or maybe we just did a, did a really poor job communicating. So we'll fix the communication. But getting that gift from our members and being thankful about it and closing the loop with them is part of our culture. And that's what we've actually invested a lot in customer service. And it's almost like the, the Zappos story. Like, I think that's kind of, for me at least personally, is, you know, one of my role models is yeah. they built a customer service business. I mean, they were a shoe business, but they were effectively yeah. a customer service business. But taking that mentality and viewing your members as part of the fold, and it's a two-way conversation, I think is the, is the core of it because we're never going to get it right the first time and it will be a long journey. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah. What have you learned along those same lines? Like, what have you learned maybe about habit formation, like getting people to bake this into their lives kind of on an ongoing, you know, kind of long-term basis? Again, it's anything that requires like a behavior change is, is, is tricky. And a lot of founders kind of run into that problem where it's like, hey, I get you to the site. Maybe I get you to sign up. Maybe I even get you to do something once or twice, but to embed it into my life is tricky. And, you know, I guess on the one hand, like you've got, again, it's literally on my arm. And so I have this constant reminder to check in. So maybe, maybe that's doing 80% of the work for you, but I just be curious to see like what you've learned around, because especially in healthcare, like that's one of the things they talk about all the time is like adherence is such a challenge. I can't get them them to take their meds. I can't get them to do the supplement. I can't get them to do the training. What have you learned about successfully getting people to kind of change their behavior? Yeah, behavior change is a very hot topic, right? And we're all fortunate that now there's a lot of science, both from the neurology and psychology perspective. And I think the neurology piece is actually super fascinating. And with the advent of new technologies to monitor things, how the brain reacts and what it secretes is, is super valuable. I think the, that, that sheds some light into how do we think about that? Because a lot of it is just physiological as well as uh, psychological. And I think... The question you got to ask yourself, the reason adherence doesn't work is, in my opinion, is because they didn't create the product for the consumer. And so I think you have to go a lot deeper into figuring out, first of all, like trying to get people to adhere to something that's not their goal or they're not incentivized. And yeah. also they're, they don't feel good about doing mm-hmm. is very hard. I mean, yeah. just I have a, a four-year-old and I now see it. It's really interesting watching them trying to get them to do something that they don't want to do just by telling them you have to do this never works. And I feel yeah. like adherence is almost like that. Like yeah. we're an adult now, 
but it's it's not done in the right way. So I think there's a lot of good science around how do you actually create behavior. And mm-hmm. you know, the idea that you set a goal that the person is bought into and yeah. wants to achieve. Yeah. Meeting them where they are so that you don't provide negative feedback in a way that prevents them from taking the steps that they need to take. Making sure that it's intrinsically motivated. And sometimes extrinsic motivation creates a bridge to intrinsic motivation, but also doing it in the way that extrinsic doesn't break intrinsic. So I think the reason it's so hard to master is because it's a really complicated dance and it's a system that has to be put together. It's not a one silver bullet approach. You have to understand how this system works and then put the pieces together and also be okay with the fact that it may not work for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And it may not work in every instance and that's okay. It's almost like, uh, it seems like maybe the, the, the decision to go direct consumer you know, again, it's like, it's a relatively high price point product. Like you're, when you talk about intrinsic motivation, like versus my doctor prescribing me this thing and I don't necessarily have to pay for it, but like, it's sort of, I'm, it's, it's homework I'm being assigned versus I'm signing up on your website. I'm yeah. entering my credit card information. And like, maybe I, there's a stronger incentive for your customer than in the, in the normal kind of traditional healthcare type of environment because of that. Yeah. Um, it seems like maybe that's an advantage for you. You know, so that's such an important point because when you when the customer is the buyer, you have to create value for them and the value is perceived. So you could be creating a ton of value, but if it's not perceived, it doesn't matter. So yeah. now if you look at it from that lens, so okay, I'm going to create a product that creates value for you because only when the value created is greater, value perceived value created is greater than the cost you're going to incur is when you're going to purchase or adhere with this product. And then you say, let's go break down value creation. What does that mean? And it means certain things in health. It means things like feeling, making people feel better, making people look better, making people have better long-term outcomes. Yeah. It's making sure that people save time, save money, increase access. There's the emotional side of it. They feel belonging. They feel self-esteem. So there are this, there's this equation you could put together and say, this is the value creation side. And then you can put an equation. The other part of it is the cost. Obviously, price is one, but there are more costs. And then being really thoughtful and honest with yourself that this product creates what value for whom? Because also yeah. persona, based on your persona, the perceived value is different. For example, somebody that wants to lose weight will put a much different value on a program that somebody's 20-year-old and healthy. It could be the same exact program. And it could be the same exact equation. It's just that that component of the equation will be very small for the 20-year-old. For example, let's say if it was a 20-year-old feels pretty good. Like that equation, if you had a, I don't know, $500 cost and the only thing you did was feel good, it's probably not going to cross the value creation, especially given that for the 20-year-old, probably money is more tight. So the right side of the equation is heavier. Right. And the left side of the equation is lighter. So it's just not going to, the equation is not going to solve. So yeah. you have to be really thoughtful about what value are you creating for whom, at what point in their journey, for how long. And when you create that, then you can start thinking about, okay, so how do I now, knowing how the human 
psychology and neurology works, how do I bridge the short-term feedback in the right way at the right time for them to see the benefits, the visualization? This is why the visualization is so important because perceived value is just as important as real value. So if I'm actually saving you 10 years of healthy life, but I'm not showing it to you, the perceived value is zero. The real value is massive. How much would you pay to live 10 years healthier? So there's, it's just a very complex set of things that you have to be really thoughtful to think through, break it yeah. down, and then create your product to serve that specific goal for that specific persona, and then expand from there. Because if you try to create a product that meets everybody, you obviously off the get-go, you couldn't. Imagine if you created this equation and then tried to solve this equation for 10 different personas. Yeah, you will end up with a very different price structure. You end up with a very different uh, set of features. You know, you mentioned that you know that the, the next leg of the stool is the a- action and how, like, what, how do they, how do you help your members take action based on what they've learned? I would imagine that you have a relatively unique data set in terms of people's you know responses, what spikes what, and that kind of thing. And and you know, you mentioned kind of earlier on that one of the things that is interesting about it is how how variable it is and how individualistic it is and how it, it, it is relatively major differences depending on yeah. the person and their physiology. That said, I would imagine with all the data that you've kind of gathered at this point, there, there are maybe some patterns that you've seen that are pretty consistent for people. Like if they wanted to improve their metabolic health, like maybe what, what are some of the low-hanging fruit <laughs> opportunities for just the general person to kind of make a dent in this that seems yeah, pretty there's some really good ones because obviously my friends and I use this. So whenever yeah. people here over for levels, they get a ping. It's like, hey, can I, you know, can I try it? And there are a number of things that are pretty much, I think, constant. Now it could be exceptions, so don't don't quote me on this. One is I think the order in which you eat your food matters. And this is to me like a free lunch, no pun intended, because I eat the same things. I just change the order. I don't care. Like yeah. if I eat my uh, vegetables and my meat first, and then I eat my carb second, as long as I get the total enjoyment for me is the meal. So I think the order matters. So eating your your fats, your proteins, and your uh, fiber, and then your carbs later makes a difference. So I guess this is the old adage of eat your dessert after your food. Maybe they, they, they knew without having CGMs, but I think that generally works. At least it works for me and the people that you know I talk to. I think another one is any kind of activity after a meal, especially if it was carb heavy. And it doesn't have to be, it could be anything. So let's say I ate a carb heavy meal because I wanted to, because, you know, Loveless doesn't prescribe any kind of specific diet, right? right? We're just saying like, you could be a vegetarian, you could be a pescatarian, you could be a keto, you could be whatever. Like yep. there is a path to optimize and reach your metabolic goal. And so... One of the ways you could do that is this idea that some kind of activity after dinner is probably the, more, the one that you're naturally most sedentary. And so if you go for a walk, even yeah. around the block, 15, 20 minutes, or if you have, for example, you know, a pull-up bar at home and that's what you do and you just time it a little bit after your dinner, make sure you don't do it too early so you don't get a stomachache. But any kind of activity right after a carbo will, will help. And the physiologically, the way it works is basically your muscles start using the glucose. So therefore it gets pulled out of your blood, therefore your levels come down, right? And so it's the physio, once you understand the physiology, it's like, yeah, of course, 
The third one I would say that is kind of a underestimated, but it's kind of like a duh after the fact of sleep. When I don't sleep enough and there's a threshold, like between seven and eight hours, doesn't make a difference. Between seven and maybe, you know, six and a half for me at least. And this is completely individualized, right? But once I break five and a half, my glucose levels will be totally unpredictable the next day. And so I'll have random, you know, volatility. I'll probably be a higher baseline. It's, it just goes all over the place. And I also know, like the, the behavioral thing, this is worth the connection of the data and the, and the feeling is, I don't know how you feel, but when I don't sleep, the next day I crave junk food or energy yeah. food, like high energy foods. Like I'm trying to make up for the deficit of the way that I feel by fueling glucose or carbs. And then you go on this crazy roller coaster because you felt tired. So you had to pick your, you know, sugary food, energy bar. And then I went like this and I came back down. I felt more tired. So I had another one, you know, and it just, it just becomes very unmanageable. But the thing that kicks it off is, so I would say those three are the big ones. And then breakfast, a lot of times, my personally, like I thought I was super healthy when I joined levels, I typically avoid uh, refined carbs, sugar, rarely, I think, you know, ice cream was my probably weakness, but outside of that, generally healthy, but my scores weren't so great when I joined levels and it was like, I'm really surprised. And it was only a few small tweaks that took my scores from the sixties and seventies to the nineties. And that one of them triggers breakfast. Like what you put in that breakfast will make a huge difference. And for me, it was oats and fruit. And so it had a kind of a, yeah, I, sw I swapped uh, oats for flax, flaxseed and chia. And yeah. I swapped like, you know, a honey crisp apple or, you know, high sugar apples for blueberries or whatever, pick yeah. your bear. Right. Yeah. And I was, I like it just as actually, I like it more now than I did in the past, but because I didn't know I would have that and it would create crazy spikes right in the beginning of the day that sets the tone for the rest of the day. So anyways, for what it's worth, that was personally- Yeah, the walk thing, that was totally my, that was my experience. That was the, that was the, the biggest uh, surprise for me. It was like how much of an, not, not even aggressive, just like a, yeah. like a dog around the block, like it had a material impact. Really interesting. I want to be respectful of your time. You mentioned the the blogging and the podcast and all that kind of stuff. I, I've, I, I teach a class at Kellogg and Digital Marketing, and one of the things I've shown them, I talk a lot about like not becoming reliant on paid acquisition as kind of your primary channel, yeah. and trying being really in, uh, aggressive about trying to build up some you know organic form of acquisition. And obviously, I think you yeah. probably have one. Just again, the device spurs yeah. conversation, but you were very deliberate about about content. Walk through maybe like how what you've learned from that process, maybe especially early stage startups, a lot of the feedback I get is that like they don't feel like they have the time to do it. And so they don't prioritize it. And then they yeah. kind of get in this quagmire, right? Where like yeah. you know, they, they run into CAC issues and things like that. So like how did you how did you all think about organic and maybe advice on how to invest in it for other startups to think about? Yeah, to be honest, I can't take credit for any of this stuff. And you know, we were so lucky to have some really incredibly talented people, specifically Ben Grenell, our head of growth, and then Mike Haney, head of editorial, and then obviously Casey. So they're the brainchild behind this. But you know, I, I could try to describe the thinking. It all comes again from the core values we talked about at the beginning, which is create value for the customer. Everything is within this lens of create value for the customer. And if you think about social media ads, it creates zero 
value for the customer. It's a flash in the pan and it doesn't create, it's very fleeting. And so, you know, flipping down on its head, it's like, okay, so how can we create awareness? Because ultimately this is awareness and conversion, right? Awareness and conversion strategies. So how can we do awareness and conversion in a much more sustainable way that again, creates a feedback loop, again, creates this positive reinforcing growth mentality. So yeah. the two concepts we talked about, one is create value for the customers, two is create feedback loops. And you could apply that to marketing and awareness and growth. And so if you think about content, that's exactly what it does. So by creating content, you are creating knowledge that will add value to users. It will increase awareness. It's reusable. It can be reinforced in all these different ways in the system. And for example, you could take the content, you could do a podcast with it, right? You can, and then if you want conversion, you can work with a, you know, a well-reputable podcast personality that, that is aligned with your brand and your message to create the conversion. Now, not to say that there isn't a place for, for marketing and sure. social marketing, but it has to be very deliberate and very targeted versus this, you know, do it and hope for the best strategy. Yeah, that's like you're, really... you know, it's interruption marketing versus, you know, presumably I would imagine that you're acquiring most of your audience from that stuff, either through organic search, which is I typed in something and you're answering my question or yeah. organic social, which implies that somebody shared it because they thought it was yeah. valuable. So, I mean, yeah, you're to your point, you're kind of flipping it on its head. Really interesting. Yeah, totally. So what's the future? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned uh, you want to own my all the things that are kind of going on in my body. You talked about sleep, it sounds like would be an, an interesting kind of correlative exercise. Like what does the future of levels look like? Yeah, we, well, just to be clear, we don't want to own anything in your body. <laughs> in an ecosystem, you're part of a, you're part of a, you're part of a larger, got it. <laughs> yeah, but joking aside, I think this idea that we will, we really want to be the trusted entity to help you understand what's going on in your body and help you make behavior changes based on data, based on science, so that you could have both a short-term impact, being happier, feeling better, more energy, play more with your kids, whatever, stay up you know, more if you, you know, feeling good, and the long-term trajectory to avoid metabolic health dysfunction and all the things that come with it. Unfortunately, the stats are that over 80%, I think the number is 88% of people in America suffer from some sort of metabolic dysfunction. And obviously, you know, obesity is, I think, what is it, 40% plus, yeah. but even more than that, all these things that lead to this dysfunction of energy production and usage in your cell, it's a real, real problem. And we're hoping that by making this feedback loop complete and providing the insights and the actions, we can help make a dent in that. So that's our, that's our big vision. Got it. Very cool. Well, for folks that want to learn more about Levels, where should we send them? We have our website, which has a ton of great content on it. Uh, and we're also active on different social media outlets. Well, Maz, this was really uh, illuminating. I really appreciate you taking the time and the best of luck in the coming years as you continue to kind of champion this cause. I think it's a super important one. And, you know, I know the product had an had a material impact on how I make food decisions. So I imagine it's doing the same for everybody else. So really appreciate you taking the time. This was great. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for having me.
My guest today was Miles Brumond. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening.